Last week, we looked at a couple great chapters of Ezekiel, chapters 36 and 37, which dealt with, anybody? What did we deal with primarily in Ezekiel 36 and 37? What's the kind of theme in those chapters? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Prophecy? Yeah, definitely. Somebody else? Okay. Dealt with Israel. Dealt with the restoration of Israel. The regathering of Israel? Is it coming back to you now? Was it, who was here? Anybody here last week? Okay. Maybe I should start there. We'll find out uh, everybody is the way. Okay, that's fair. That's understanding. Okay. So it dealt with the regathering and the restoration of Israel back to their homeland. Because remember, Ezekiel is writing this book. He's given this prophecy from Babylon. They're sitting there as captives. Well, that regathering... And restoration was speaking of yet a future day. Yes, we're seeing it in part today. Praise the Lord. It's so exciting to see the nation of Israel. Again, people coming in and the, and the, and the country beginning to flourish once more. But though we're seeing it in part, that was speaking of yet a future day. And as Israel is seeing a revival taking place, in their nation, as we see it today, well, what they're also going to be seeing and experiencing is Israel's enemies also kind of ramping up their charge and their animosity against them. And there is coming a time when we're going to see the nations around Israel that are going to be unleashing an attack upon Israel. And again, that is simply kind of the sentiment that's been going on for much of, of history. We, we saw that happening very close to home just last weekend when a gunman entered into the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh uh, and, and killed 11 people out of just, again, this anti-Semitic sort of sentiment and, and feeling. And don't think that's an isolated feeling. This is what Israel has been facing all through their history, and it continues to just get amplified in our own day. And yet all through their many persecutions and trials, all through their growing number of enemies, Israel still stands. And that is nothing but just the hand of God at work and working in and through Israel. And yet as clear as that may be for us, many Jews still have not turned to the Lord their God and have walked in obedience and faithfulness to Him. There's still a single event that's going to take place, that's going to startle them to realize that God is indeed their God. He is Jehovah. He is the one they need to put their trust in. And that event is described for us here in Ezekiel 38, 39. The very event that God is going to use at a future time that's going to wake up Israel and draw them back to him. It's the Gog-Magog battle. And in it we see key nations that are rising up to take out Israel, but they have failed to take into account the God of Israel. So listen, as we look today at some of the players involved, we're going to be going back to the root of various people, groups, and nations. And the names that we're going to be seeing in God's word aren't going to make a lot of sense to us at first reading, but we're going to look to kind of break it down and bring some explanation to try to make sense of it all. So listen again, remember our context. Ezekiel is sitting in Babylon. Jerusalem and the temple have just been destroyed. Captives from Judah are being brought in ways to um, Babylon in exile or captives from Judah. Yeah being brought into Babylon as exiles. And God, at this time, gives Ezekiel a message of hope. In the last couple of chapters, um, 
chapters 36 and 37, this message that, listen, you're in exile now, but there's coming a day where you need to be brought out. And you're going to inherit your land again. And God's going to revive them. And he's going to make a covenant peace with them. But God now shows Ezekiel a situation that must unfold for Israel to experience this peace. It's not going to be right away. Because again, we've seen that they've been brought back into the land after Babylon, but then scattered again. And they may be brought back into future time when God's going to, again, bring that covenant of peace. But in order for that to happen, God needs to see this scenario unfold here now that we're going to look at in Ezekiel 38. So read along with me, chapter 38, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Verse 4. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togarma from the far north, and all its troops, many people are with you. So first of all, we see and identify here that this is a word from God being spoken through Ezekiel, but the word is for Gog. Gog is a person, not a place. Gog is the person that this word is being directed to, that God is speaking to directly. It says that Gog is of the land of Magog. And it says he's the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, these are some interesting names that, again, like I said, don't make much sense to us today because God is referencing these names going back to the the table of nations that we see in Genesis chapter 10. In fact, look at Genesis 10 verse 1 to 3 on the screen. And here's what it says there. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer. He's mentioned here in Ezekiel 38. Magog, he's mentioned. Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, they're mentioned. And Tiras, the sons of Gomer, were Ashkenaz, Rephath, and Togarmah. Also mentioned in Ezekiel 38. So we go right back to the descendants of, uh, of Ham, Ham's son Japheth, and many of these descendants in Ezekiel 38 are, the, are the, the sons of Japheth. And these people were the people after the flood that were repopulating the earth because the earth is destroyed. They're repopulating the earth. They're spreading out. And now they become these various people groups and nations that we have today. So, again, these names are given to let Ezekiel know in his day where these groups are coming from. Now, the names may have changed, but the geographical areas haven't. All right? So let's try to make some sense of where these areas are. So here's a map that gives uh, a broad overview of just kind of the whole, you know, Europe, Asia, Middle Eastern section. Now, where's Israel there? Do you see? Listen, on a map like this, you can barely identify Israel because it is so small. Do you see that? And yet here we have, all through history, nations that are continually coming against Israel. They say, well, it's because they're in a land that's not theirs. We need their land. We need to share their land. We have other people that want to... Look at how much land there is all around Israel. Why do we only isolate Israel? Because it's not about the land. It's not about moving Israel out to give land. It's about just moving Israel to extinction. 
That's the, the heart behind so many of the enemies of Israel. This becomes a spiritual issue more than it is just a geographical, political, or, or land issue. It's a spiritual issue that's at work, it, driven by a real enemy, a spiritual enemy. So understand that here. Israel, so small, you can barely identify it there. So much land all around, and yet so many people conspiring against Israel. But here we have this map, and now Magog is mentioned. The word is addressed to Gog, and Gog is of the land of Magog. Now many ancient historians have linked Magog to the Scythians, who are the ancestors of the Russians. One of the earliest references to Magog was by Hesiod, who's the father of Greek didactic poetry, who identified Magog with the Scythians and southern Russia in the 7th century BC. All right? So, before Ezekiel's day. In the 5th century BC, Herodotus, known as the father of history, wrote extensively about the Scythians and how they terrorized the southern steppes of Russia from the 10th century BC to the 3rd century BC. Joseph Flavius, another well-known um, historian, also references the Scythians and, and their connection to Russia. Philo is another in the first century who identifies Magog with southern Russia. And, and the Great Wall of China in an 8th century reference was called Sud Yagog A Magog, meaning the rampart of Gog and Magog. So right there, bordering Russia, you have the Great Wall of China that is identifying this rampart of Gog and Magog. So we can safely say that Magog speaks of Russia, along with other northern regions, formerly part of the USSR that you see there, Kazakhstan, um, and, and you got Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and possibly even Afghanistan. All these areas around there, you've got, again, linked to Magog. All right, so... Uh, and then we see that he, Gog, is the prince of Rosh in verse 2. He's the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, Rosh is an interesting word because it's the Hebrew word for chief or head. All right? Many translations don't have the word Rosh. It's just simply he's the, the chief or the prince of Meshach and Tubal. So here now, the New King James, as I'm reading from, has Rosh identified there. And, and some Hebrew scholars say that instead of this being an adjective in the Hebrew, it's a proper noun. Again, referencing this, this title in a sense. In Hebrew today, however, Rosh is the Hebrew word they use for Russia. Now, some will find this to be too easy of an identification, and that may be so. But whether you, you treat this as a noun or an adjective, we're seeing that God is the chief of a region in the northern parts of Asia. Okay, so Rosh would be identified up in this region as well. And then Meshach and Tubal. These were descendants again of Japheth, as we read in Genesis 10. And that speaks of modern-day Turkey and possibly encompassing Azerbaijan and Armenia as well. Togarmah, as we're going to see at the end of verse um, 6, middle of verse 6, is also identified with Turkey. Okay, So we got these three groups, again, referencing Turkey. And make no mistake about it, as we see in verse 4, these nations are being drawn out by the Lord. God is the one that is instigating this battle, but it's not to wipe out Israel, it's to wake up Israel. Understand that here. God's not against Israel. This is not to wipe out Israel, this is to wake up Israel. 
We're not sure what the hook in their jaws will be. And trust me, it's not going to take much, right? Because there's so much hatred towards Israel that is already in effect today by these nations. But perhaps there will be something extra that these nations will be intrigued by. It's interesting that just recently, uh, just in this past year, there was a, a, a great discovery of oil in the Golan Heights. Very rich quality oil. Uh, Israel recently has discovered great, you know, um, uh, supplies of natural gas as well. So Israel is beginning to see that they are sitting on a on a gold mine in a sense, and that could be something that the other nations are going. Well, we want to take control of that. We want to have a part of that. That's in the Golan Heights. This should really be our territory. And so this could be the hook in their mouths. We don't know exactly. It could be related to other things. I'll get to another possibility later on here. But there's something that's going to draw out these nations to go, we want this. And, and it's just going to just kind of be the icing on the cake for their already animosity against Israel. But God is the one behind it. All right? God's the one behind it. So it says that they're going to come with a great company there in in verse 4, a great company is going to be with them, all fully equipped and armed. And this great company is going to include Persia, which is Iran. In fact, Iran, just up until the, the uh, early um, 1900s, was referred to as Persia still. So this is kind of a, a very modern name, Iran, that's been given. So they're Persia. And then along with them is going to be Ethiopia and Libya. Some translations will say Cush um, and Put. And these are, again, the, the sons of, of Ham, Noah's descendants, okay? So here we begin to piece together some of these nations, people groups, regions that are, are allying themselves together to come against Israel at a future date. We've also got Gomer that's mentioned. Gomer is up in the, um, it, it kind of references the, the Germanic people and uh, Eastern Europe as well. Interesting stuff going on recently. Somebody mentioned even in the first service about um, Germany and Russia with some of the um, partnering they have, I think, with some oil lines and stuff. So we see some interesting things developing there. Some people have also linked Gomer to the region of Turkey. And so um, that could be. But then again, Togarma mentioned in verse 6, and that is indeed uh, the area of Turkey. And in fact, many in Turkey still call themselves the House of Togarma. So, interesting stuff. And these nations, like I've been saying, are all working together over a common bond, and that is their hatred over Israel. Now, when you look at these nations mentioned, and the three leading or perhaps strongest nations that you see here, you have Russia, Iran, and Turkey. These three nations are nations that you will hear mostly about in news today, that are active in in things today. Now, for many centuries, that kind of concept confounded scholars thinking, how are these three nations, Russia, Iran, and Turkey, going to be involved together? This doesn't seem to add up because right up until recently, Turkey has been kind of a a supporter, a a bit of an ally with Israel. It's only been the last year or so that we've actually seen these three geographical areas beginning to ally together. Understand something and hear this. Never in the history of humanity has this type of alliance happened between Turkey, Iran, and Russia. But in the past year, we have been witnessing these three nations working together in a coalition like never before. Look at some of these 
articles here. This is from April of 2018. It says, Putin cements powerful new alliance with Iran and Turkey. In challenge to Trump in the West as the three leaders vow to bring a lasting ceasefire to Syria at summit in Ankara. Look at the, the, the first part of the article. Here's what it says. The leaders of Russia, Turkey, and Iran met in Ankara for talks yesterday as they cemented their unlikely alliance over Syria in a challenge to U.S. and Western influence in the region. Do you hear what the, the writer says? In an unlikely alliance, because it has been very unlikely. But just in our past year, we've begun to see Russia, Iran, and Turkey working together like never before. Here they are, the leaders of these nations now, shaking hands. We see them here meeting together in, in, a, in a conference here just to kind of, again, confirm and show their, their partnership in working together. Listen, guys, this is what Ezekiel 38 has said some 2,500 years prior to this happening. To where many people have thought through history, come on, you can't take this literally. We can't see these things actually happening. And yet in our day, in the past year, we've begun to see these things come together. Notice who else is mentioned as we saw on the map. We saw, we saw um, Ethiopia and Libya being mentioned. Check this article out that came just this uh, last month in October of 2018. It says, Putin's taking over Libya by stealth in order to point a new weapon at the West, millions of desperate migrants writes Michael Burley. It goes on to say there, um, so bloody and extensive in President Putin's record of aggression, not least in Syria and Ukraine, that an incursion into the empty deserts of North Africa might hardly seem worth noting. Yet, the discovery that Russia is moving troops and missiles into war-torn Libya has rightly caused alarms to sound throughout the capitals of Europe. And, and people of prophecy are taking notes saying, whoa, hold on a second here. They're saying this is kind of an unlikely thing. But again, this is what we see God's word spelling out for us all along. It's amazing to watch the news today through the lens of scripture and to realize what is taking place. God has already begun to lay out for us in great in great advancement in prophecy and we're beginning to see these things taking place in our time exciting stuff here we'll look at verse 7 it says prepare yourself and be ready you and all your companies that are gathered about you and be a guard for them after many days you will be visited in the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel which had long been desolate they were brought out of the nations and now all of them dwell safely you will ascend coming like a storm covering the land like a cloud you and all your troops and many peoples with you so this leader now Gog right he's the leader he's being told to get ready and, and guard those that are with them. Because he sa- God says, after many days you'll be visited. In other words, God says, in, in many days, in the latter years, meaning in the end times, I'm going to tap you on the shoulder, I'm going to call upon you. And you're going to step into action for me. Just like God raised up the Babylonians to come against Israel. This, these were not godly people or good people, but God used them to be his vessel of judgment for a purpose. So too, God's going to use this coalition of armies Gog says I'm going to visit you I'm going to use you for my purposes here in the latter years speaking of the last days it's something that is yet to happen okay and it'll happen when Israel it says is dwelling safely never 
has Israel been able to dwell safely in their land, right? You look at what's going on today, and it doesn't seem like they feel at ease. This may speak here of the condition just before this coming invasion, where there will perhaps be a time of peace in the Middle East. But you could also interpret this word safely to mean confidently, that Israel is sitting confidently. There, there may not be a feeling of peace and safety, but the Israelites dwell confidently in their land and perhaps confident in their military might. Verse 10 says, thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Of course, now at the time of Ezekiel writing this, you know, in his day, in Ezekiel's day, cities commonly would put up walls as defense. No city wouldn't have a wall. It would be foolish because they would make sure they've got a defense system around them for invading armies coming against them. So cities commonly had walls, right? But Israel here in our text is described as a city without walls. Now, the only walled city you'll see in Israel today is the old city of Jerusalem. But if you told the Jew today that Jerusalem was fortified, they're laughing at you. They're like, no way, wait a second. We're on a fortified city because so many of our dwellings are outside of those city walls, right? They are today a land of unwalled villages just as Ezekiel prophesied. So the nature of their attack is not only religious now but it's resentful they're coming against this plunder and booty out of out of spite out of jealousy out of envy they see the land becoming fruitful again and the people are prospering off the land so all these armies are gathering together to come and take it for themselves to take this plunder they're filled with envy and bitterness and and come to you know take these things for themselves well verse 13 mentions another few nations here. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lines will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? Now these nations will all protest the armies that are coming in against Israel. So again, got all these armies. They're, they're, they're aligning themselves together to attack Israel. Right, But now we got Sheba and Dedan. Sheba and Dedan is Saudi Arabia. And Tarshish is believed to be the area, kind of the, the outskirts there, the uh, British Isles, the UK. Um, remember when Jonah was trying to escape the call of God to go to Nineveh? He gets in a ship sailing for Tarshish because he wants to get to, to what was then the kind of furthest known parts. He was ready to set sail way over here, you know. Many believe it's speaking perhaps of Spain or that area, but we got it there in the, in the British area. And then it speaks of the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions in verse 13. Who's all the young lions? Well, if this is indeed speaking of the British Isles, then the young lions could be speaking of like the US, some of Britain's commonwealth countries like Canada and Australia. And you see what's happening is they're all protesting these invading armies coming against Israel to gather this and take great plunder from them. They're protesting, but they're not taking action. Perhaps 
Because they're thinking, well, if we step in, well, these same armies are going to come against us. What's to stop them from coming against uh, us doing so? Especially with Saudi Arabia's oil supply. So maybe they're sitting back saying, you can't do this. And maybe, again, they're protesting to the UN here. But again, there's no real action taken. And I propose to you, it's also, perhaps, because these nations are going to be rendered inoperable by an event that's going to precede this battle. Because we're going to hear that this battle, they're going to be burning this fuel for seven years. I believe this battle that we read about in Ezekiel 38, 39 is going to take place at the beginning of the tribulation. The great tribulation is going to last for how long? Seven years. What's going to happen just before the tribulation? The rapture of the church. When God gathers his church to meet Jesus in the air with him, where we are taken to heaven with him for that seven years, while God is, is exercising his judgment upon a Christ-forsaken world, that's called the great tribulation. He's not going to judge the righteous of the wicked. He's going to take the church out of the way prior. And so what's going to happen with some of these nations that are protesting and the young lions, perhaps speaking of nations like Canada, US, Australia, you know, UK, where there are many believers, more so than you will see in some of these other areas, many believers and some of them serving in military positions. But if they're taken out of the way at the rapture, well, the country is going to be greatly decimated from many of their people and resources and unable to step in to battle and help Israel. So that's a possible scenario why they're only protesting this. Very interesting. Well, let's read on in verse 14. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It'll be in the latter days that I'll bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I'm hallowed in you, O God, before, or O God, before their eyes. Notice verse 15 says, all these nations are coming out of the far north. What's interesting is if you look at Israel on the map right there and you draw a straight line up from Jerusalem, you're going to intersect almost directly with Moscow, right up there in Russia. And so God is calling these nations, it says, from the far north, at least the instigator Gog, who is responsible and really kind of gathering these nations together, right up in line with Moscow, drawing from the far north. And it says they're riding on on horses. Now again, this is most likely figurative. If Ezekiel is seeing tanks and trucks or even helicopters, he's not going to know how to communicate that. Jet fighters may come. He doesn't know how to communicate that. So he refers it to horses. The only thing he can think of that would carry a person. But what's interesting is that Russia has the largest population of horses in the world. And they have an extensive cavalry made up of military trained horses. So this may be accurate. Especially when you think about the, the terrain in and around Israel, mountainous region where uh, again, the easiest accessible way to get through that is on horse, which they discovered greatly when they were fighting against uh, ISIS. And they see that many of them traveling on horse, just again, able to navigate through the mountainous terrain there. And so God says, he will do all this, verse 15, 16, sorry, so that the ma- nations may know me, right? This is God's purpose in all this. This isn't to... to hurt Israel 
This isn't just to be destructive. This is so that God will, will again, cause his name to be hallowed, to be praised, to be exalted, to be honored and revered. It's so that the nations may know him. This is God's purpose and, and, and very directly so that Israel will again have their eyes open to turn to the Lord their God. This is God's purpose in all of that. Look at verse 17. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I've spoken in former days, speaking of Gog? Of whom I've spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? And it will come to pass at the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath, I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountain shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. Verse 21. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus, I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord." See, God, God reminds God that he's spoken of him previously, right? In former times. Though there's no significant or, or specific reference of God by other prophetic authors and, 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 and writers of the Old Testament prophets, there are certainly general references to what God would do to those that opposed Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 7 says, Also the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. So as God and all these, uh, Gog, sorry, Gog and all these armies come against Israel, God is going to reveal his wrath. He's going to come against them strongly. So much so that every living thing is just going to shake in his presence, it says. There's going to be great earthquake. Things are going to be in upheaval. People are going to be filled with an awe and a fear. The topography in and around Israel, and, and, and I would say for a wide area around it, is going to drastically be changed. Mountains, it says in verse 20, are going to be thrown down. God's going to do a significant event that's going to wake up Israel. That's going to cause the nations to know that we're not fighting against a, a people group or a nation. We are fighting against the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings here. And these armies are going to be thrown into confusion as every man's sword is going to be turned against his brother, verse 21. They're just going to like get turned. And God's done that in previous times, hasn't he? With Gideon and his army going up against, a, uh, as they were outnumbered, well, God just began to turn those armies against Gideon upon one another. And yet, in this chaos and catastrophe, guess what we see happening? God is magnifying himself. His purpose, once again, is to bring Israel to the understanding that he is indeed Lord. So chapter 38 really is the intro for this battle. Chapter 39 deals a little more clearly as to how it will unfold. We're going to see some repetition. We're going to move through this chapter kind of quickly here. But look at chapter 39, verse 1. 
and you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field for I have spoken, says the Lord God. Verse 6. And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So I'll make my holy name known in the midst of my people, Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations shall know that I'm the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Surely it is coming and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day which I have spoken. So again, God is the one that's going to lead these nations against Israel. But Just as quick as he turns them around with a hook in their jaws, whether it be oil, whether it be just uh, an animosity against Israel, God is going to quickly thwart them and bring them down swiftly. And that will be a demonstration of God's strength and might and will be the catalyst for Israel once again to honor the Lord their God. And all the nations will also know that God is the one true God, the Holy One of Israel, as it says in verse 7. Look at verse 9. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel, they're going to go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. Very interesting. Verse 10. They will not take wood from the field, nor cut down any from the forest, because they will make fires with the weapons, and they will plunder those who plundered them, and pillage those who pillaged them, says the Lord God. It will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will obstruct travelers, because there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore they will call it the valley of Hamon Gog. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying and they will gain renown for it on the day that I'm glorified, says the Lord God. Now, you think, how can you burn these weapons for seven years? That doesn't seem to jive. But again, Ezekiel is seeing things that he probably can't relate to, right? Just like John in Revelation is trying to describe things that he can't describe. He'll use references like locusts. Perhaps it's... Literal locust, maybe it's, it's these Apache helicopters. We don't know, but he's trying to identify it with some terminology that they have use of in their day. So Ezekiel, in the same way, is writing what he's seeing with language that people can understand, though it may not fit exactly with what he's seeing. The Hebrew language uses words that can be translated as a, a launcher for a bow and piercers as arrows. Perhaps what is happening here is that You know, God is knocking down their rocket launchers, their missiles, their piercers. So it's possible these weapons that are being burnt even are uh, uh, of a nuclear kind of substance. If that's the case, then they would be able to burn these things for seven years. But again, they don't need to go for seven years totally because I believe this is going to lead them right up into that 70th week of Daniel to the second coming of Christ to the end of the age, basically. So here's this kind of timeline that we see. This battle takes place. The tribulation, at the beginning of the tribulation, 
They begin to burn these weapons, right? And, and it says that they're not needing to take wood from the forest. Now, that in itself would have caused many people to go, wait, wood from the forest? Because Israel, for a lot of their recent history, was basically a barren wasteland. People walking through would say, we, this place is unfit for habitation. Because during the, the, the Turkish rule, the, during the, 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 the Ottoman Empire, Right up until the time of World War I, the, the Turks were taxing those in Israel for every tree they had. So people said, well, we're going to beat this tax system. We're going to cut down our own trees. I don't have any trees that we can't be taxed on. So much of Israel was just laid bare. But again, as Israel began to regather in the nation, began to see this place flourish and blossom again, great force have, have, have arisen today. You'd go, you drive through Israel, you just see the lush force that Israel has today. That wasn't always the case. So again, Ezekiel's speaking of a future time where there's great force there, but they won't need to access the lumber there from the force because they're going to be burning of the weapons that God has knocked down and thwarting these armies coming against Israel. And the name of the place where the people are going to be uh, laying the dead is called Hamon or or um, Ham, the valley of Hammon, Hammon Gog. And that word Hammon simply means multitude or horde. So there's going to be many dead to bury and they're going to be given their own parcel of land just to accomplish that. All right? So it's very significant. Verse 14, they will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land and when anyone sees a man's bone, he shall set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamon Gog. The name of the city will also be Hamona. Thus they shall cleanse the land. So there's an interesting scene that's unfolding here that would seem to allude again to the possibility of a, 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 of a nuclear fallout. I'm not saying dogmatically that's the case. It's a possibility here. Because notice in verse 14 that there are men set apart that are regularly employed. In other words, these are like professionals that are hired to go through the land for seven months after this invasion and mark the bodies. All right? And then these bodies are buried east of the Dead Sea, which is downwind, which all makes sense if you're dealing with nuclear activity and the threat of radiation. So that's a very likely scenario unfolding here. People perhaps in hazmat suits having to go through the land and, and deal with radiation but mark the bodies for burial and then deal with some of it even after seven months. Now, let me make up a little side point here. It's interesting as you look at, let's see if I can bring up this map again here. Okay, here we go. It's coming. There we go. So as you look at this map now, again, you see these nations that are involved in this battle against Israel. But what's interesting is none of the nations that border Israel are involved. They're non-players in this scenario. Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, all bordering Israel but are not mentioned as some of the players involved here. That could be because of a, another scenario that many believe is going to unfold prior to this Ezekiel 38-39 war. And that's a battle that seems to be mentioned in Psalm 83. That seems to mention many nations that are right around Israel. It, it, it's again very possible that Israel has already dealt with these nations around them. 
and has, has dealt with them. We see what's happening in Syria today. I mean, come on, it's, it's just decimated. In fact, there's an interesting verse in Isaiah. In um, Isaiah 17.1, the burden against Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. Uh, if you look at pictures of Damascus from just a few years ago and compare it to today, you see that it has literally become a ruinous heap. I don't think it's the complete desolation of the city, but it's coming to that place where Damascus and this prophecy in Isaiah 17.1 which speaks of the longest inhabited city in history that's going to be ruined. It's never ceased to be inhabited but in this day, in our day, we're seeing that coming to fruition. And it could be that these nations around the, uh, Israel have already been wiped out. Perhaps Israel is already engaged in a war with them and dealt with them, which is why they're dwelling safely, as Ezekiel 38 says. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why these nations are coming against Israel, because they've seen how they've dealt with these nations, and they want to come now and deal with Israel. That's a possibility there. But very interesting. So let's finish up this chapter, verse 17. We continue to read. As you see this, this judgment now, again, upon these nations. As for you, son of man, speaking Ezekiel, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I'm sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. Listen, that term Bashan, that's a reference to the Golan Heights area. So again, like I mentioned, this great oil discovery there on the Golan Heights, perhaps this is, again, the centering point for this battle taking place or where these nations are going to be destroyed as they've been looking to set up camp around Golan Heights. That's a, a disputed territory that is in great conflict today. So that's a reference there to the Golan Heights area. Verse 19, you shall eat fat till you are full. We're getting close to lunch, aren't we? Are you guys getting warmed up for that here? Drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. Verse 20, you shall all be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, and with all the men of war, says the Lord God. I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I've executed, and my hand, which I've laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I'm the Lord their God. From that day forward, the Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgression, I've dealt with them and hidden my face from them. So God here speaks to Ezekiel and he says, Ezekiel, speak to, you know, the birds of the air and every beast of the field. Gather together to this great feast that I'm giving you. Understand this and let me clarify. God's speaking this to the animal kingdom, not to humanity. Some people were worried about that in the first service. Is this people coming and feasting on the blood and the fat of all these dead people. No, we're not talking about cannibalism here. This is the beast of the field that's feasting on this. Just let's clarify that here, okay? So God's calling upon them. And again, it's just a picture of his judgment. These people have been thwarted. They're laying down dead and all the beasts of the field are just coming and snacking on them. And God makes it clear that Israel also has been judged of the Lord as well because he allowed other nations to take them into captivity so that they would be cleansed. 
That's what they're experiencing right now as Ezekiel's writing. This says they're sitting in Babylon. It's to cleanse them. It's to draw them back to the Lord. And indeed in Babylon, they'd be cleansed of their idolatry, which got them there in the first place. So understand that God is always accomplishing his good and perfect purposes through it all. Remember, as they're sitting there in Babylon in Ezekiel's day, they're hearing about an upcoming invasion against Israel. They just experienced one. And now they're to brace for a future one. But the Lord's message in all of this is one of hope. Look at here as we end, verse 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name. After they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, when they dwelt safely in their own land and no one made them afraid, when I've brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and I'm hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. Verse 29, And I will not hide my face from them anymore for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. Listen, as we mentioned last week, This is happening in part today. God is drawing his people back to their land. He did that as he brought them out of captivity in Babylon. But understand here again, as they faced many numerous oppositions and exiles, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Holocaust, they've gone through this time and time again. All right? Disobedience has always led to this judgment that Israel has faced. And yet, here we see them today coming into the land, repopulating, making it blossom again. But Israel is going to face yet one more major attack, one that's going to lead them to a right heart change now and in an awakening to Yahweh. It's then that they will repent of their sin and be brought to faith in the Messiah because that has not happened in large part today. Yes, it's happening in part. Praise the Lord as many People in Israel are, 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 and many Jews are, are putting their faith in Messiah, recognizing Jesus to be their Messiah they've been waiting for. But this is going to happen in large part in latter days when it says God is going to pour out His Spirit upon them. For that to happen, there needs to be a repentance and a turning to faith in Jesus Christ. Then the Spirit will be poured out upon them in great measure that will lead them to them, lead them to God. This is what God is speaking about here. And this invasion, this Ezekiel 38-39, Gog-Magog battle, is going to be the callous that God's going to use to do that. Understand, God is in control of all of this. And he's accomplishing his good and perfect plans and purposes in it all. You know, let me, let me close with this. Only two groups of people, that there's only two groups of people that God has said These are my witnesses. It's Israel and it's the church. Isaiah chapter 43 and Acts chapter 1. God has identified these two people groups, Israel and the church, as my witnesses. So understand, when I talked earlier about this being a a spiritual battle, the criminal is always going to want to destroy the evidence and take out the witness. We have an enemy at work today whose purpose it is, is to take out the witness. To destroy any kind of evidence that there's a God at work. This is Satan's plan all along. Take out Israel, 
take out the church. That's why we, the church in Israel, are always going to face opposition. And that's what we see happening with Israel. But praise the Lord, we have one on our side that is mightier than any opposition. And Ezekiel 38-39 makes that very clear for us. Don't expect things to get better and better for us as the church. In fact, I think you see more and more today how much opposition is, is just amping up against Christians, how much the world is opposing Christians, making us seem like the, the enemy. And so there's a great opposition, but that's the plan of the enemy, to destroy the witness of God. We need to stand guard. We need to be aware. And we need to continue to put our hope and our faith in God because he is greater than anything that the enemy can throw at us. And here in Ezekiel 38, 39, that becomes very clear for us because as God leads the enemy against Israel, so God is also able to thwart the enemy and bring them down. And all to accomplish his purposes and his plans. Well, just as we end here, couple application points first of all god sees the beginning to the end right everything he does in between is to accomplish his purposes and end objective i just get i I just love when we can open up the bible and see what god has spoken through a man like ezekiel some 2500 years prior and see how we are experiencing these things now in our day the beginning of the fulfillment of these things god is working all things out for his purposes purposes and his objectives. So we need to simply trust him in all things. And secondly, whatever we may face, like I just finished saying, whatever we may face, with God on our side, we are assured of ultimate victory so we can continue on praising him. Don't worry about what you see happening in the world. Don't worry when you see things coming against you in great opposition. And put your hope in the Lord because he is greater. He is mightier, he is stronger, and he is for you. He is on your side. So let's continue on rejoicing in the Lord, not not growing in fear, but growing in faith to see what God is going to accomplish in it all. All right, let's pray. So Lord, we look to you right now, and and God, this is an, an interesting passage that we go through here this morning. But it's wonderful to see how your Bible your word that you've given to us has just such a, a, a prophetical a, a prophetical thread weaving through it all. And, and we know your Bible would be true through fulfilled prophecy. And we see things happening today that is beginning again to fulfill even more prophecy. And I pray that that would just grow us in our faith and trust and and see what you are doing, that God, you are the God of the beginning and the end, and everything in between. Alpha and the Omega, and you've got it all under control. So Lord, may we continue to trust you, put our faith in you, and believe that whatever we may see going on in the world, it's you simply carrying out your plans and purposes. And we know those always are ending and working for the good of those that love you and are the call according to your purposes. So may we just continue to trust you and be led of you in all things. May we be that witness in the world today even, recognizing that times are short. So may we stand up and be that witness of you and see many more come to faith in you, God. So we ask these things now in your name, Jesus. Amen.